Welcome one and all to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Podge. And I, as always, am Tane Kell. Tane, you know, we're at that time of the year where we're setting up our trial calendar dates for the upcoming months and, and I guess next year, filing ethics disclosures, making 3.15 reports. Don't you miss any of that stuff? <laughs> no, Wade. No, I do not. So today, folks, we're going to discuss Brady motions and how they should be handled. Did you say Brady? Yeah, you know, Brady motion. This is a story of a man named Brady. I thought it was a lovely lady. Oh, well, and then, yeah. And a man named Brady. I don't know. I hated that show. It was Alice that was the... Yeah, the maid. And, you know, my wife's name's Alice. She is not a maid. No, she is not. No, she is much more... How about Tom Brady? You think he came from them? I don't know, but he's given up an awful lot to go back for one season of football. I'm just going to throw that out there. So anyway. Let's start in the beginning. Brady versus let's, Maryland. Yeah, let's talk about the actual Brady. Uh, Brady versus Maryland. So the the suppression by the prosecution of evidence favorable to an accused upon request violates due process where the evidence is material either to guilt or punishment, irrespective of the good faith of the prosecution. You know, Tane, I think a lot of these cases, people misunderstand that if the prosecutor didn't intentionally, quote unquote, withhold it, yeah, that that that's some sort of defense to Brady. It's not. And in fact, even if the prosecutor didn't know about it and it was still in the possession of the state, you know, police officers had it, somebody had it. It's still going to be a problem it under is. the case law. So the prosecution and, and just so that you understand, the Brady, I guess, body of law basically says the state has a duty to disclose favorable information to the defendant. Right. And and that favorable information has been sort of expanded over the years to include impeachment information, you know, different things that may not be obviously substantively no, he didn't do it. He did it. It might not just be exculpatory on Correct. its face. It might be something that's tangentially related to being exculpatory. Correct. So the prosecution must disclose that evidence in its possession, and it basically says that it's a requirement of due process, that the Brady line of cases is a requirement of due process. Therefore, its purpose is not to displace the adversary system as the primary means by which the truth is uncovered. No, no. Instead, it's to ensure there's not a miscarriage of justice. Right. That is, that the prosecutor is not required to deliver his entire file to the defense counsel or anything. However... They are required to disclose evidence that is favorable to the accused that, if suppressed, would deprive the defendant of a fair trial. I think later we're going to talk about some of the cases that talk about would call the validity of the verdict into issue. Right. Now, Wade, I worked in a jurisdiction my whole career where the basic policy of the DA's office was to turn over essentially their whole file. And so it it made it easier uh, in terms of they didn't have to make a call. Is this Brady or is this not Brady? We're just going to give everything. But 
you've still got to be careful in that situation because, like I said, there may be stuff out there that they don't have in their file, but that a police you know, organization has in their possession, which is still the state and still considered to be in the possession of the prosecutor, even if they don't physically have it. Exactly. And we're going to talk about one of those cases here in a few minutes. So it's clear that the prosecution must turn over things that are affirmatively exculpatory. It obviously encompasses witness statements that are favorable to the accused, for example, and tame these appellate cases. They really turn on whether the guilt of the defendant, the evidence of guilt of the defendant is overwhelming or not. Right. Yeah. They talk about that a lot. Yeah. That's 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 what the court is normally analyzing when they determine whether the Brady material is something that they should reverse on. That factor is not to be considered by the prosecutor in deciding whether to turn it over. Correct. It's to be, that's an issue that gets discussed on appeal. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, that shouldn't have anything to do with whether the prosecutor turns over material or not. And in fact, if you're a prosecutor and you're out there listening, if you have any doubt at all as to whether it's Brady material, I'd turn it over. Uh, that's just a little friendly advice from Judge Kell or former retired Judge Kell. So the fact that one expert rendered an opinion saying that the, the, the hair sample, I guess, was not suitable for testing, that should have been disclosed, particularly where the state called a different expert who rendered an opinion based upon that same hair sample. That's right. And uh, there, there's a case where uh, it was found to be a Brady violation for the state to withhold portions of toxicology reports relating to the victim that showed that the victim had illegal drugs in his system at the time of the crime. And, and that it was violation where the state withheld parole records that had established that the defendant had diminished um, – I keep trying to use the right word, was intellectually disabled, diminished capacity, because that was an issue in the trial. And not because you just need to go around looking for parole records, but when the parole board has that information and it was not revealed, that was chargeable back to the prosecution. However, it is not a violation of Brady for the state to fail to disclose juror data, which showed that a juror on the panel of potential jurors had previously served and whether or not that prior jury had rendered a particular or returned a particular verdict. So the the Brady rule includes any information about deals or agreements between the witnesses. The so-called reveal the deal. Yeah, yeah. and Giglio. I mean, it's like Giglio reveal the deal. Those are cool words. Yeah. Um, the state is under a duty to, av- to reveal any agreement, even an informal agreement, with the witness concerning criminal charges or anything else pending against the witness. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, Tane, in a little more detail as well. Yeah. So we've already talked about the fact of who is in possession, and I'm using air quotes there. You can't see that on the uh, the completely audio this is not a, of the podcast. This is not a visual medium. Thank way. God. Yeah, thank you. Um, that that who, what it's in possession. So I don't think we really need to go through all of that again. If you ever need any of that case law about the police agency being an arm of the state and all that, we've got it in the outline. So Tane, let's talk about what a defendant has to prove to prove a Brady violation. Right. So the defendant has to show a few things. Number one, that the state possessed evidence favorable to the defendant. And, you know, there's kind of a broad definition of what may be favorable, as Wade was saying a few minutes ago. Secondly, the defendant did not possess the favorable evidence and could not have obtained it himself with any reasonable diligence. So it's not just that the state didn't turn over something they had. It's that 
already. Not only did they not turn it over, but he didn't have access to it or probably couldn't have gotten access to it. Uh, thirdly, the state suppressed the favorable evidence. In other words, they did something actively to not give it to the defendant or let the defendant know about it. Uh, and then fourth, had the evidence been disclosed to the defense, there is a reasonable probability that the outcome of the trial would have been different. Now, that's the that's the difficult question. And Obviously, again, that's that's going to be the hard one. Well, right? and that's why you were saying a few minutes ago that you know overwhelming evidence um, is the standard that frequently comes up in these cases with respect to the analysis of Brady. So material. the Georgia appellate courts have attempted to further define this fourth prong by saying to establish the fourth prong, often referred to as materiality, a defendant does not need to show that he necessarily would have been acquitted, but only that the state's evidentiary suppression undermines the confidence of that trial. And they said, when analyzing that fourth prong, we must evaluate the withheld evidence in the context of the entire record. Again, Tane, playing back into the thing you just pointed out, which is how much evidence was there? Was this critical? Was this crucial? Was this tangential? Yeah. So let's talk about next, the other line of cases, Wade, about delayed disclosure of Brady information. So there are times when the prosecutor makes a disclosure, but it's so late in the process in the criminal trial that it's it's almost a nullity. Yeah, it was disclosed, but we couldn't do anything with it. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to a student in one of my classes about this the other day. They were studying something having to do with criminal law, and they were relating a, a an actual situation that had occurred with a friend of theirs um, who got given some information about a witness late and basically you know, refused to go forward with trial, got held in contempt. And they were saying, what's the right way to deal with that? That's said, clearly well, not the right I way. said, well, avoiding contempt is probably your number one thing there. But I said, you know, you make a record and you go on, you know, and you say, I, I, I don't feel like I can adequately pursue this because I didn't get this in time. I'd only got it, you know, 24 hours ago or some, I haven't, haven't even had a chance to find this witness, whatever you might do. But, uh, but don't, don't, don't get held in contempt. That's probably not good. Yeah, and that's probably not good. Anyway, so continuing so on. In the case of untimely disclosure, the defendant has to show that earlier disclosure would have benefited the defense and that the delayed disclosure deprived him of a fair trial. A lot of the same sort of analyses of the four prongs, but this de this deals with it wasn't suppressed. It just wasn't turned over early enough in the process. Right. Now, whether disclosure uh, at trial is timely enough to satisfy Brady depends on the extent to which the delay in disclosing the exculpatory evidence deprived the defendant of a meaningful opportunity to cross-examine the pertinent witness at trial, whether earlier disclosure would have benefited the defense, and whether the delay deprived the accused of a fair trial or materially prejudiced the defense. And so you have a bunch of cases in this outline that in different quotes and different things, they all come back to the same point that, that ultimately at the end does the, is the, the thing that was suppressed so material to the, to the fairness of the proceedings and when it was disclosed such that it makes it unfair for them to have gone forward. Yeah, let's um, let's talk about some examples, Wade, just to kind of, you know, shed some light on the situations that arise. So, Tane, I want you, if you don't mind, this brand new case of Downer. Yeah. Why don't you take that one? Because such the second one is an Augusta case ah. that I actually know a little bit about. So okay. it might actually be helpful. This case is such a Downer, though. Uh, Brown and Downer. If her name was Debbie. 
Yeah, it would be awesome. Yeah. Brown and Downer broke into the victim's home to rob it, uh, thinking that the victim was out of town. The victim was not out of town, and the victim confronted Brown and Downer once they entered the victim's home. The, defi- the victim was then killed in the attack and during the home invasion. Brown pleaded guilty, and as a part of his plea agreement, the state agreed that they would allow a low-key wedding at the jail. Stop. Okay. <laughs> Somebody wants to marry a guy about to do life mm-hmm. who is snitching on other guy. Mm-hmm. She was actually, by the way, Tane, tangentially involved in the case, the wife of, in this wedding. Mm-hmm. But this is not a deal. This is not a, when I say deal, a deal in the traditional sense yeah. of less sentence or bond or whatever. This is, we're going to let you plead guilty. You're going to get a life sentence or two or whatever the, mm-hmm. the right agreement was. Had no agreement as to sentence. The agreement was to allow you to get married. Yeah. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is... Cruel and unusual? (laughs) No. (laughs) Wow, that was good, Wade. (laughs) Eighth Amendment. Um, No, is... uh, Was she going to (laughs) testify at somebody's trial and now she doesn't have to testify? But nevertheless... It was love, you... you, I'm a cynic. jaded person. I'm a cynic, yes. No. So anyway, their deal was they were going to allow a low-key wedding at the jail. Would you have performed that ceremony, Wade? (laughs) I wouldn't have. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, both Brown and his new wife testified at trial, and their testimony was material. Uh, None of the information about the wedding, this low-key wedding, which is the kind of wedding I prefer, uh, was known to the defendant. Now, during the trial, Brown and his wife repeatedly referred to one another as their husband or wife. Uh, The wife's son testified at the trial and testified that Brown was now married to his mother. And in a custodial interrogation, the defendant referred to Brown and his wife as being married to one another. So in other words, the defendant knew that there'd been a wedding. He just didn't know that something was discussed about that prior to trial. So the Supreme Court held that defendant's counsel had the opportunity to cross-examine Brown and his wife about their relationship and chose not to do so. The defendant was fully aware that Brown had received a plea deal in exchange for testifying against the defendant. Therefore, even though the defendant was not aware of the portion of the plea agreement that allowed for the wedding to occur, the defendant was fully aware of the consideration being given to Brown prior to his testimony, so the court ultimately held that there wasn't a break violation. So, I mean, I think you can see that in this case, the defendant and his counsel possessed a lot of information about what was really material, which was that there was a deal here and then that there was a relationship between the defendant and his new wife that somehow might be relevant to the proceedings. Now, in that See, case, they cited Hood. Tell the folks about Hood. Yeah, so so the case they cited there says, uh, uh, although the full scope of a witness's possible incentives to cooperate with the state was not made known to the jury, the jury was nonetheless aware that there was reason to regard this testimony with skepticism, and the defendant was therefore unable to establish the fourth prong of Brady. And same kind of thing is, you know, they had enough knowledge there that it wasn't essentially there was a deal he pled guilty they knew that yes same same as in as in this case so folks we'll be right back after this pause for station identification folks this is wade and tane you're listening to the good judgment podcast on the world wide web or wherever else you listen to these things 
As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Why don't you tell them a little bit about the the Augusta case, the 2005 case, uh, the Schofield versus Palmer case? And I need to be careful because the case against Willie Palmer remains pending, and it's very complicated. It has been it has it has been tried to a jury twice, death sentence given twice, and reversed twice. So, no, no I just it's not my case. It's the Augusta okay. circuit. Right. I'm in the Columbia circuit now. So go for it. Um, this is an Augusta death penalty case that the defendant and his wife were divorcing. And this case is called Schofield versus Palmer, 279, Georgia, 848. The evidence showed that the defendant enlisted the help of his nephew in a plan to kill both the wife and their 15-year-old daughter as part of a home invasion. The nephew pled guilty, and he testified. Another witness was able to verify portions of what the nephew's account was during those events, and the death verdict was returned. And this, I think this case is going to be important mm-hmm. for uh, our folks to understand just how important this can be. Mm-hmm. Prior to trial, the defense filed motions relating to any Giglio material. This is a death penalty case. You can imagine they filed a few motions. Giglio, the reveal the deal case. Correct. And specifically asked to have any deals revealed. The prosecutor fully disclosed the, the extent of the nephew's plea agreement and made no other disclosures. As you're going to see, the DA at that time didn't know about this that I'm about to tell you about. Mm-hmm. During the habeas portion of the litigation, meaning after all the direct appeals had been exhausted, and as you now know for the second time, the defense counsel became aware of reports from an unidentified confidential informant. The GBI testified that to the existence of the CI had not been made known to the prosecutor due to their internal policy of protecting the the identifying information of CIs. Now, during the trial, it became pretty clear that the CI was this person that testified at the trial. Okay. But that they never revealed that. Right. What they also didn't reveal is that they had paid him $500 as a um, reward prior to or shortly after the murder and after all the arrest. They just didn't reveal that at all, not to the prosecutor. They did not answer the question. They actually, during the habeas litigation, there was a lot of um, – resistance to having to having the the GBI produce that information as a part of the habeas litigation. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court held and they noted and they began by noting the good faith or lack thereof, good faith or bad faith of the prosecutor is irrelevant to a Brady analysis. And I think that's something important for judges and lawyers to hear. Yeah, because in this case, clearly there wasn't bad faith. I mean, the, the prosecutor wasn't informed by the GBI. Correct. Because of the reliability of particular witness may be determinative of guilt or innocence, impeachment evidence, including evidence about any deals or agreements between the state and the witness, falls within that Brady rule. The court noted that it's irrelevant whether the information was in the possession of the prosecutor or the law enforcement agency or only one of those two. 
In ordering a new trial, the court held that it would not endorse the intentional withholding of important information and then ended the analysis with this quote from Brady itself. Society wins not only when the guilty are convicted, but when, but when criminal trials are fair. Our system of the administration of justice suffers when any accused is treated unfairly. A prosecution that withholds evidence on demand of an accused, which, if made available, would tend to exculpate him or reduce the penalty, helps shape a trial that bears heavily on the defendant. That casts the prosecutor in the role of an architect of a proceeding that does not comport with the standards of justice. That's, so That's pretty serious language. That is, and it sounds like something you would say. I know, right? Um, so in this case, I, we, we, we point this particular case out with detail because the prosecutor had no idea, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, let's talk next about this Anglin case. Anglin now, this versus is a little complicated. Yeah, I know. We're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read a lot of this to make sure that we get this right. So listen carefully, folks. Um, all right. In Anglin, on the evening before the murder trial began, the prosecutor advised defense counsel that the sheriff had just told the prosecutor that someone else had confessed to killing the victim. Defense counsel asked for a one day continuance, which was denied. Hmm. On the final day of trial, the defendant called the sheriff as a witness. He was intentionally questioned outside the presence of the jury. The sheriff testified that about two months prior to trial, he received a phone call from a lady named Houseman. Houseman told the sheriff that her boyfriend, Daniel Hale, believed law enforcement had the wrong man in custody. Daniel was the brother of the chief investigator who handled the investigation of the murder. So now, just understand... Daniel dates Houseman. Mm-hmm. Daniel Daniel is brother of chief investigator. Right. Daniel tells girlfriend Houseman. Mm-hmm. I think they've she, got the wrong guy. She calls sheriff. And she calls the sheriff. Okay. So the investigator was then called as a witness and initially testified outside the presence of the jury. This is Daniel's brother, right. the chief investigator. The investigator testified that he was aware that his brother Daniel had confessed to killing the victim. Very different from the statement that was made by the sheriff. The jury was told that the sheriff told the investigator some information about Daniel Hale and that the investigator had not attempted to contact the lady who had reported the information. They had not documented the call, that no formal interview of Daniel Hale was ever conducted, and that there was no attempt to search Daniel's home or search his phone records. The jury was not told that the investigator's brother actually admitted to killing the victim. During the motion for new trial, a private investigator for the defendant testified that Houseman, the lady who called the investigator, uh, that Daniel Hale told the investigator that Daniel Hale had told her that he had killed the victim and that, quote, the devil made him do it. Houseman then indicated that Daniel was heavily under the influence of drugs when he made the statement and that Daniel later said that he was joking. What a joke. Yeah, that's something you joke about, right? Even when you're on drugs. Um, Daniel was called as a witness during the motion for new trial and denied killing the victim or ever telling anyone that he had killed the victim. So let me go through the holding since so now you've got all the players in the game. So there are multiple layers of hearsay, right? I mean, you actually, when you were reading it, it, it sort of became a, Houseman said, Daniel he said, said the, the, sheriff the sheriff said, or whatever. Right. So that 
the defense did not call Houseman, the lady who called, who reached out to the sheriff to report this alleged confession. They didn't call her as a witness during the motion for new trial. The only evidence at the motion for new trial was Daniel, who said, I never said that. The, def- the defense indicated that they would have admitted the testimony to prove that the investigation was shoddy and so unreliable that they were not attempting to prove that Daniel was actually the killer. They just wanted it for the to, sh- to prove the investigation was not thorough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is, again, not a bad tactic. Correct. Especially under those facts. Right. The court noted that the defendant was able to make those points during the trial because the investigator testified to some of what he knew and admitted, for example, that Daniel had not been interviewed or searched or whatever. Right. And they they weren't allowed to admit this hearsay-laden testimony. The Supreme, The Georgia Supreme Court concluded that the defendant failed to establish that an earlier disclosure would have event, would have benefited his defense or that the delay deprived him of a new tra- of a fair trial. Hmm. So let's talk about Thomas. I'll read these facts. So, so let me read. just let me just insert one quick thing there. And and I don't know who tried this case and obviously we never disparage our colleagues. We love y'all. Love you. Uh, love you mean love it. You. Love you mean it. And I know how pressing it is when you've got a murder trial that you're about to try. But when somebody says that someone has confessed to the murder who ain't the defendant who's about to be on trial. And I was told about it last night. Yeah, and I was told about it last night. I'm probably going to give you I'm, I'm going to give you a little time. We might you, break I'm going to give you the I'm going to give you the 24 hours you asked for. Yeah, we might break early yeah. and then come back at we it might, tomorrow. We might take a long lunch. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, go ahead, Wade. Let's talk about State versus Thomas. All right, let's talk about Thomas. This is a murder case that was based upon a drug deal gone wrong. That's weird because they usually go so well. I know, right? I know. There was evidence that a maroon Nissan Altima was used by the defendant to accomplish the ripoff and murder. Glenn, the person that, that, that owned the Altima, the female that owned the Altima, her name is Glenn, she owned the Altima in question, and at the time of the trial, she had pending felony shoplifting charges pending in another circuit. During the motion for new trial hearing, conviction obviously, During the motion for new trial hearing, it was established that Glenn had the pending charges and that before the trial, the lead prosecutor and his investigator visited her home. She was handed a subpoena for this trial and was told that if she did not testify, both Glenn and her mother would be subpoenaed. At the courthouse the next week, just before trial, Glenn testified she met with the prosecutor and was told that if she answered the state's questions, quote, as they wanted her to answer them, then her case will go away, end quote. At the motion for new trial hearing, Glenn testified that her te- trial testimony was untrue. Also, in the motion for new trial hearing, there was a, a null pros order was entered from that other circuit where all of Glenn's felony charges were dismissed. The reason given for the dismissal on the face of the null pros was Contacted by Fulton DA's office, Miss Glenn testified for the state in a murder case, asked for a null pros. Well, at least they made a good record there. Yeah. I mean, the prosecutor on the murder case testified he was unaware that Glenn had pending charges when he spoke to Glenn prior to trial. However, he did recall speaking to a lawyer for the defendant who asked him something about Glenn's criminal history, which had been provided in discovery. The prosecutor then testified he never contacted anyone about null-processing Glenn's charges and did not know who might have contacted that other circuit 
to have those charges dismissed. The defendant's trial attorney testified at the motion for new trial hearing that she was aware that Glenn had shoplifting charges, but she thought they were misdemeanors. And to tell you the truth, Tane, and I didn't write this in the outline, they were misdemeanors, except she had had so many, they became felonies. So they were, she was arrested on, on misdemeanor shoplifting charges, but indicted for felonies. I see. Glenn did not speak with the defense lawyer leading up to trial. She, the defense lawyer reached out to her. She wouldn't return her call. So she never got an answer as to whether Glenn was expecting assistance on the shoplifting matter in exchange for her testimony. Based upon that evidence, the trial judge found that a Brady violation had occurred and granted a new trial. So tell the folks what the appellate courts did with that morass. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of a mess. The trial court's decision to grant a new trial was upheld on appeal. In a lengthy analysis, the Georgia Supreme Court noted that witness credibility was a matter Within the purview of the trial judge, the state argued that the defendant could have learned of the information with the exercise of reasonable diligence. The court held, we are not persuaded that reasonable diligence requires a criminal defense lawyer to cross-examine every state witness about a potential deal just in case there is a deal that the state has improperly failed to disclose and the state cites no authority for such a requirement. The court concluded by finding that the case was largely made through the testimony of an accomplice and the corroborating evidence required when testimony from accomplices is introduced, discussed in a prior episode of this podcast. We talked about that previously. Yeah. Um, When that uh, corroborating evidence was slight, given that evidence, that evidentiary posture, the appellate court could not say that suppression of the quote deal was not material to this case. So this section of the podcast, Tane, is uh, our attempt to discuss, you know, how might you handle a Brady motion? Yeah. Now, to be clear, the fact that a defendant files a Brady motion does not, or a Giglio motion or any or motion to reveal the deal, does not require the trial judge to become an investigator and start looking for stuff, right? Right. So we're and in talking. Fact, and in fact, if I if I remember correctly from my 15 years on the bench, I had a lot of Brady motions filed because it's a standard motion that lots of defense attorneys file. But I don't remember us ever having a hearing on one. You know, I mean, the state would frequently say, "I've got one brewing now." We've already turned over everything you know that we have in our because, as I said, in my jurisdiction, the DA's policy was to essentially turn over whatever they had, and um, so it just didn't come up very often. That it, it it comes up more frequently, as you've seen in these cases, in motions for new trial right. where they've discovered some evidence that you know didn't that come was up during trial, right? right. And and there is a requirement that they request it, so that's why you see the motions in almost every case, right? Um, but we're going to talk about, be. okay, you have that one-off disputed pretrial Brady motion, okay? Right. Or maybe even, I guess, a, a post-trial media Brady motion. First of all, you got to make a factual record. Right. Ensure there's a request filed or clarify that there was a request filed. Allow the defendant to identify whatever it is they believe that exists that has not been turned over. I mean, this does not authorize just a fishing e- expedition with a trolling net. By the defense. And, you know? it sh- and it sure doesn't require, as you said a minute ago, you to then do an in-camera inspection of the state's entire file. Not yet. It's coming. I know. Um, allow the prosecutor to respond to make sure they have an opportunity to put it on the record. And Because you're going to presume some things. Make them say, what are you looking for? What do you have? And then only consider then whether an in-camera inspection of the state's file is appropriate. So... 
Tane, tell the folks about this because you and I talked about this. That that it's kind of I I was unaware of this to be honest with you. Tell the folks what what the appellate courts have said about this in-camera inspection obligation. Sure. This is a quote now. We hold that a trial court is not required to conduct an in-camera inspection of the state's file in connection with a, quote, general Brady motion unless... After the state has made its response to the motion, the defense makes a request for such an inspection. In all honesty, guys, and I did not know this, if the defendant requests it, you have to do it. Yeah. The question is, what do you do with it? So so do you make a copy of it and seal it in the record? And if the case in the state's case file is a banker's box, do you do that? Or do you simply make a report? I have seen appellate cases that have said both were fine. Um, did you, did you really never have one of these? I I really don't ever remember having to make an in-camera inspection or really go any deeper than having an initial hearing where the state said, judge, we've turned over everything that we have in our file. Cause again, that was the policy in our jurisdiction. And, you know, me saying something along the lines of, well, counsel, is there anything that you believe is out there that you haven't seen? And sometimes there would be. Sometimes mm-hmm. they would say, we think there's a body cam uh, video that we haven't seen. And the state would say, we'll go see if there's one out there. You know, we'll- And then you don't hear about it again because, assumably, they find out there's not one or it malfunctioned or whatever. Or they give them, they find there is one and they give it to them. So, but, but that's as far as I ever got in one of these cases because I see the same problem that you're talking about, Wade, which is, how do you even document what it was that you reviewed in your in-camera inspection? It's the quote-unquote file. Okay, well, what's that entail? Did you watch every video? Did you, you know, did you listen to every syllable of and every you know, statement? I don't know how much you were around this, but at least in our jurisdiction, in the when I was still a part of the Augusta Circuit, the body cam video for this incident might be an hour and a half long for an officer who walked around waiting for the crime scene folks to, but from the time they arrived, it flips on and it stays on until it flips off. That's exactly right. Do you watch all that? Yeah. I mean, see, that's why I'm saying, and if you're going to make a copy of it, and I put it in the outline, just as a thought, if you're going to make a copy of something, or you, if maybe if, if the defense lawyer identified a section of the file, then you could print that section of the file, but bait stamp it, mm-hmm. you know, put your number on it. So that everybody knows that you looked at 30 pages and on page 23, it says this. And on page four, it says that. Yeah. Um, file it under seal with the clerk. Don't put it out in the world. Um, we, we've, we've cited some other Brady cases that we thought were potentially interesting. Um, for example, withholding a polygraph results where the state's key witness failed a polygraph. <laughs> yeah. You think that might be potentially exculpatory? It's not. They said that's not admissible. That's amazing. And it's not likely to lead to admissible information because it's the opinion of the polygraph examiner. Mm-hmm. So, but I would have said exactly what you said. Duh, yeah. of course that's admissible. Well, but I mean, really it makes not. sense because, yeah, because the polygraph exams aren't admissible. So Correct. I guess that makes sense. Um, so, folks, that's all for our episode dealing with Brady motions and criminal cases. To recap, Brady includes all kinds of exculpatory information, including Cool words like Giglio and reveal the deal. Yeah, but it also includes evidence that relates to things like impeachment. There is no requirement that the trial judge initiate some sort of investigation merely because a Brady motion's filed. But as we pointed out, if there is a hearing and the defense claims its dissatisfaction with the state's responses, 
It appears that the judge is mandated to conduct an in-camera inspection. This outline is available where all of our outlines live, 24-7-365 at goodjudgepod.com. And it's just cram full of statutory and case citations. But folks, also, never forget to reach out to us on goodjudgepod at gmail.com with any podcast topic ideas or any comments about the podcast. And you can also visit us at our fairly new LinkedIn page at the Good Judgment Podcast uh, LinkedIn page. So I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Wade, did you know that comedy star Chevy Chase was a drummer in a band that included both Donald Fagan and Walter Becker? Their band was known as the Leather Canary, but later Fagan and Becker went on to form the band known as, wait for it, Steely Dan. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.